Uh, if we want to create a better world for people, we need to understand what better is. Better is a lot more than just material needs. It's also about growing. It's about relationships. It's about creativity. And there's a massive amount that we as therapists and psychologists have learned about human well-being that can be really useful in developing models and understandings of a, of better political system. In this interview, I'm joined by Professor Mick Cooper. Mick is a professor of counseling psychology at the University of Roehampton, a chartered psychologist, an internationally recognized author, trainer, and consultant in the fields of humanistic, existential, and pluralistic therapies. This is Mick's seventh engagement with the Weekend University, and today's conversation focuses on his latest book, Psychology at the Heart of Social Change. We cover a wide range of topics, including how psychology and evidence-based psychotherapy can inform public policy to create a more equitable, compassionate, and fairer society, whether life is primary in determining consciousness or the other way around, the surprising parallels between healthy psychological functioning at individual, interpersonal, and societal levels, and more. You can learn more about Mick's work at mick-cooper.co.uk and get a copy of the book by going to bit.ly forward slash mc hyphen book 23. Okay, Mick, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, so I'm just curious, you know, out of all the things that you could focus on at this stage in your career, I'm sure you've got a lot of opportunities. Why did you choose to, to write this particular book at this moment in time? Well, it's something I've wanted to do for just years and years and years, really. It's, it's the most important stuff to me. Um, I guess I've always been interested and cared massively, sorry, not interested, but just cared massively about this question about how do we try and make a better world, really. It seems just the most fundamental question. And I think a lot of my work has been kind of slowly groping towards that and trying to answer that. Um, I mean, I love the work I do as a therapist. I love the writing I've done as a therapist about existential relational depth, pluralism, but it's all really kind of being about thinking about how do we help people? How do we create a world in which there is less suffering, less pain, uh, less misery, uh, more well-being, more happiness, more thriving? Um, so I really wanted to, and of course, you know, people suffer. It's not just people who go to therapy who suffer. Lots of people suffer and lots of people can't afford therapy or can't access it. So I wanted to kind of, be, be, before I die, so to speak, for want of a less existential way of putting it, say, kind of get some stuff out there about thoughts about, yeah, how we can create a better world for all. Um, yeah, it's what I, I, I came massively passionately about. 100%. Now, one of the quotes that you reference in the book is, it's not consciousness that determines life, it's life that determines consciousness. Can you tell us about the significance of this quote in your Yeah, mind? that's Marx, isn't it, Karl Marx? Who I guess he's, he's a difficult person to talk about just because so many horrendous things have been done in his name. But um, when I was an undergraduate student, I studied Marx and I, I write in the book about coming from a background, both my parents were members of the Communist Party. So he was like, uh, quite a kind of kind of important figure, I guess, in some ways in in, in my childhood. Um, and I think, I mean, he's amazing. He's amazing to read. You know, what's amazing to read when you read Marx, particularly his early works, like the Economic Philosophical Manuscript. Sometimes you just think you're reading Rogers. I mean, it is incredible the overlap between the two of them in terms of authenticity, uh, in terms of the importance of freedom and being. Uh, his, his early work is just. I really encourage people to have a look at it because it's so powerful and so humanistic but what marx does which i guess is a bit different from rogers and some of the person-centered thinkers or theorists is he 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 starts with the idea that we are our activity there was a very famous psychologist in the 30s called vygotsky uh who i was really influenced as well when i was an undergraduate and his his argument was that we don't kind of develop inside um, and then that kind of comes to the outside. What Vygotsky said is that we act in the world and this is very consistent with a lot of uh, 20th century philosophy, people like Heidegger, the existentialist. It's like we kind of exist in the world uh, through for Marx uh, a kind of conscious activity and for Marx obviously means production and how we work is really important and that's what then creates our internal world. 
Um, so whereas kind of Rogers assumes that there's this internal world that then kind of manifests in our interpersonal relationships, what Vygotsky and what Marx talk about is the idea that we kind of engage and we interact and we're there out in the world. And that structures our internal world. Um, so we have dialogue out in the world and that, 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 that affects <clears throat> how we relate to ourselves and 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 we we work in factories or we 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 live in kind of a particular kind of world environment and that structures our internal world and how we relate to ourselves and i think what i love about that is i love particularly about those kind of parallels between how we are on the external world and how we are in the internal world so vygotsky says that everything starts on the internal external sorry on the interpersonal and then comes into the intrapersonal. And, you know, I, I think we don't need to go quite that far. We can say that it goes both ways. But the idea that there's kind of a, an intrapersonal world, a kind of intrapersonal system about how we relate to ourselves, and then an interpersonal world and how we relate to others, and that we can move between these two kind of levels and see parallels between these different systems is really key to the book. Um, because I think that there are a lot of very important parallels between this kind of internal world that we have and then the society and the community that we live in. Yeah, that's something I definitely want to get into later. Um, the next thing I want to ask about is... Um, this this idea that's I suppose it's been a central theme of your work for quite a while is this idea of human beings being agentic or directional. And your last book was direction directionality, synergy, and social change. I think. Um, could you tell us about the significance of this idea in our efforts to create a change at a societal level? I think kind of one of the key themes of the book is that if we've got a political set of beliefs what is our model of the person behind it? Like, how do we see people functioning? Like if you're a Tory or if you're a Labour, Green, like who do you see people as? How do you see psychological things working? Uh, and, and a large part of the book really is inviting people to think about that and ask that question, not even to, you know, the answers are in some ways less important than just reflecting on what is, what kind of people are we talking about? But I guess I do put something out there about my model of the person, my understanding of the person that can underpin a particular political model. And coming from a humanistic existential background, I guess my model of the person is something about understanding people as kind of having some kind of activity or agency kind of going out and meeting the world. And, and that's, you know, so that we're not just blank slates. We're not just kind of imprinted on by our world. And we're not kind of machines that do something comes in and something comes out. A kind of hallmark, and this was a lot of what the last book was about, a hallmark of human being is that we are all moving forward towards particular wants and needs, uh, like relationships, like self-worth, uh, like freedom. And that our well-being is then about our capacity to kind of move in those directions and that, um, and that things are good if we can move towards the things that we really want and need, those kind of directions moving out. And that's a kind of natural propulsion, if you like, outwards. That, and and, and that's, that's the kind of way I think of understanding people that is respectful because I think there's something about understanding people as kind of machines that from the humanistic psychology perspective has always been critical of because it feels like what Martin Buber, the existential philosopher, calls as a very I-it relationship. It kind of makes the other into an it rather than another human being. And if I think about myself, you know, what's key to me is I'm not, you know, I don't feel like a machine. I feel like someone who's got energy and activity and meeting the world that I'm constantly doing. And I, I shouldn't think any less of others, you know, for me to see and experience myself like that, but then to experience other people as kind of things and objects and machines, that doesn't feel um, particularly respectful. And I think one of the themes of the book, a kind of key core idea in it is this idea of psychological equality, which is that if kind of holding a progressive position is about fairness and it is about equality, then we also need to respect um, others at a psychological level. We need to hold that kind of position of psychological equality. It's no good on the one hand claiming to be progressive on believing in fairness, but then kind of seeing ourselves as 
as, as, as kind of more active than others or smart than others or that our needs are primary over others. That you know, that I think a, a kind of progressive position is to recognise that we've got needs and we're trying to do things and other people are trying to do things. And generally, just like myself, other people are trying to do their best. You know, I think that's a core to it is that, you know, most of us most of the time are trying to do our best. And when progressive thinking gets into a kind of we're good and they're bad, you know, these bloody Tories doing this and that and, and, and kind of loses a sense of the other as an agent. That's not to say we can't be critical on it. Maybe we'll talk about that later or that we have to kind of agree with other people. But that basic sense of we're all here in the world together, trying to do our best, trying to get somewhere. Um, and uh, um, there's not kind of good people and bad people, but we're all kind of trying to move forward in, in the world and in our lives. For me, that that's a kind of starting point for a politics that then can be genuinely about equality and about well-being for all. 100%. So let's imagine a scenario here, Mick, right? Completely hypothetical, of course, but um, I want you to imagine that you've been invited to a get-together with the some of the most, like the, the world leaders, um, people that are sort of presidents and prime ministers of all these, these, these big countries. And you have to make the case in a few minutes of <laughs> why it's critical that we put psychology at the heart of, of social change. What are you going to tell them? Uh, if we want to create a better world for people, we need to understand what better is. And partly that's about people having more food and better housing and more safety. But better is a lot more than just material needs. Um, it's also about growing. It's about relationships. It's about creativity. And there's a massive amount that we as therapists and psychologists have learned about human well-being that can be really useful in developing models and understandings of a of better political systems. And that's not in any way to say it's the only, you know, history can teach us so much, anthropology, sociology, but also psychology. And I think people are a bit wary about psychology and particularly therapy. It feels maybe too intrusive, too intimate, too personal, but it kind of gets in there. It gets into the heart of stuff and says, what what is it we want to create? Like, what kind of society do we want to create? I think you can't, how could you do that without psychology? One of the things I talk about in the book is like having politics without psychology is like one of those, I don't know if you remember this now, but kind of curries when I used to be at school that had these incredibly tasteless kind of English curries that had no salt, they had lots of sultanas in it for some reason, and apples. Um, but I mean, you know, there was no taste. And that for me, you know, politics without psychology is like one of those curries without any salt or flavoring or anything. It's, um, it's, it's bland. And for a depth politics, we need richness because, you know, if you want to have a political system that people aspire to, that people have hope for, and, you know, we massively need hope now. But we need psychology can help us think about what that world is like. More than two minutes now, but one of one of the things I do in the book, which which I know is a bit off beam, and uh, is that at the end I do a kind of chapter just about kind of envisioning what a better world would look like if we drew on psychology principles. And it's it's kind of you know it's, I'm not a kind of fiction writer, but. I wanted to try and really challenge myself to say what would that better world look like. You know, what, what would that better world look like? Because I think we have to have some vision. A hundred percent. And I think that was a, I think you took a risk by doing that, but I think it was so important to do because many people in this space will just focus on criticizing, criticizing existing systems without actually offering any kind of alternative vision. So, you know, I'd be curious to ask what, what are some of the key elements of this vision that you have for 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 a better future um what did you come up with there <laughs> uh it's an interesting thing about it. i mean i mean so the way that i went at it was to say right what is it that people seem to really need and talking about kind of looking at different models and there's certain needs that come up a lot wants and needs like safety uh physiological needs relatedness comes up in all the different models uh, self-worth, autonomy, meaning. I think there's something about just kind of striving as well is a really basic thing. So I kind of started with that. And then I thought, how, what kind of society would fulfill 
as many of those needs as possible uh, for as many people as much of the time. And I think one of the ways into that is to say, well, some of these needs are really what I talk about synergetic. Like some of these needs are things that if one person gets more of, um, then the other person gets more of that. So it kind of, in terms of the total amount of needs getting met, um, things that are synergetic seem to be a good thing, whereas things that are more kind of pulling apart are probably less useful for a really positive society, although to some extent we might still need them. So the things that really come up top for me are relationships. I mean, the, the amazing things about the need for relationship is that it, it, it's such a powerfully synergetic need in the sense that the more I experience love and care and tenderness from others, the more that others often experience that as well. It's not a kind of win-lose um, relatedness, love, sex. There's so much, uh, ideally, when they're working well, can be real win-win. So, so, so the vision, first, I think, is of a world where there's really close relationships. I mean, it kind of relates to my work in relational depth, but I think close relationships has got to be core to it. Um, and that people are close, people are able to communicate to each other. Good communication is really central to that world. Um, where there's not like loads of resources wasted because people are misunderstanding each other. Something else that comes up really central to it is creativity uh, and kind of arts. Um, I'm not just saying this because my, my girlfriend's an artist, but, um, you know, the arts, I think, has a real and not, not just kind of fine arts, but kind of creativity uh, and crafts and things. It's like... If you have a world which is a lot about maybe smaller scale production, people are producing, I don't know, just a pot and they're putting their time into it and their creativity into it. Again, there's a synergy there in the sense that um, somebody gets the pleasure of creating something and then other people get the pleasure of using it and being able to draw on that and being able to incorporate that into their life. So that was something else that comes up. Diversity comes up a lot. I think there's a real kind of argument for, there's a logic to why diversity is a good thing because if you celebrate diversity it allows lots of people to get lots of different kind of needs met needs for self-worth needs for identity needs for discovery needs for uh, exploration and excitement and kind of there's not much of a kind of loss on that this kind of calculus if you like um I mean, obviously, difference can scare people. But what we know from the psychological research is that where people are acting out of kind of fear for something, uh, I mean, as therapists, you know, we learn that often where people are doing things because they're afraid of something. Obviously, we understand that and we don't kind of push people against their fears. But also learning to overcome fears and being open is generally psychologically a kind of good stance an approach stance rather than an avoidance stance and i think difference and diversity learning about different cultures different sexualities different ways of being a world that really celebrates that um is one that can really allow maximum thriving rather than one that is where people are kind of really huddled against each other uh, or where there's only kind of one or two ways of achieving. Like in the world at the moment, money is like the key decisive thing and property about whether you're good and bad. But if you have lots of different metrics, lots of different ways of being good or bad, then that means lots more people can succeed and achieve. Because I think one of the things kind of where you question that is, and this is maybe where I differ a bit from some people who are more kind of progressives, people on the left, is that I do think, not competition, but I do think that there is something about striving which is really core to human being. Um, like I think a, a lot of this world would be about cooperation and people working together because that is so synergetic. But I think we also do need to strive. We do need challenges. And I think part of the problem with sometimes more progressive systems is that it, it kind of you lose that. And if you lose that, 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 that striving, that capacity to strive, uh, then I think you lose something very integral to human being. Unfortunately, in our society at the moment, striving and one person achieving and getting somewhere often means that other people suffer and and and, and then have less, uh, which isn't great. Um, but somehow people need to strive. And I think that goes back for me to about art and creativity because art, you can strive and you can create, but being a brilliant artist doesn't mean that you're taking away something from other people. We can have lots of brilliant artists in lots of different areas and kind of really value what different people do. A hundred percent. There's so much in there. Um, something that comes to mind, there's an author, uh, Will Starr, and he writes about sort of these big topics. But one of the things he says is uh, 
the two core human motivations are to get along. And then once that need is met, it's to get ahead after. And you can't really ignore both of them, you know. Um, and the other thing is, it strikes me, you know, whenever you're talking about these things like diversity and relation, uh, relationship and everything, it seems that the core of the issue is that our societies, the, the, maybe the, the problem is that we value the wrong things collectively. We, we put so much emphasis on profit and competition, et cetera, et cetera. But if we were to somehow find a way to re-engineer these value systems in a way that we valued things that are actually going to lead to long-term well-being, both individually and collectively, then you would really get to the root of solving some of yeah. these issues. You know, what do you believe? Yeah, no, I totally agree with you, Noel, but I think also what we need to do is we need to understand really deeply why these things are happening. You know, like we need to, I was listening to Bernie Sanders on the radio a few days ago and like he was being very critical and like he was saying like, why do people, if they got a billion pound, why do they need to have 10 billion pound? It's like, it, surely that's enough. And I totally agree with him, but I think just criticising that and looking at someone like Bill Gates and saying, why do you need all this money? I don't think that really helps us get anywhere. I think you, we need to understand why it is that people strive so much for profit. Uh, why is it so important? And I think it's about self-worth. It's about vulnerability. I think it's what we were talking about before about needing to strive for something. Like, you know, and the, the, the difficult bit to say, Niall, is, and, and, and this is, goes about this thing about psychological equality, is that I can see myself doing that. You know, I can, I can see that Bill Gates is not some kind of alien monster, what is it, the lizards or something, because I think it can, some progressive politics sometimes can get close to that, like these are different beings. Like Bill Gates is not this human being like myself, and I can see in myself sometimes getting so kind of locked in stuff that, you know, I end up doing things that aren't particularly helpful for other people or helpful for society because, and why do I do that? It's, it's, it's kind of, it's, 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 it's only about kind of narrowing down. It's something about getting very focused. It's something about self-worth. It's something about my vulnerability. It's something about my need for meaning. It's something about competitiveness about against other people. And, and so I think you're absolutely right now, but by understanding it, we can think about how do we channel that? For instance, competition, like if we do need competition, then it's about, it's in things like football and things that don't destroy other people rather than things that, you know, Bill Gates having millions and billions, that means that other people are starving. I love watching football, you know, I don't like football very much, but what I find fascinating about football and things like the World Cup is that people can be so passionate about something. Where we sound like the World Cup when it's kind of really going well, you see people so passionate and caring so much and loving it when they win and being upset when they lose. But somehow all this happens within this context of kind of, togetherness you know it's not hatred it's, it's it's like you can really care and be really upset about losing but you can also still kind of feel connected to the other team and kind of recognize that that's part of the game and i think somehow we kind of need stuff like that in our lives to really care and be passionate and of course that does mean we're going to get upset you know and that does mean we're going to lose stuff and i think if you try and strip all that away you know when i was a kid i used to go woodcraft folk do you know the woodcraft folk neil it's like a kind of hippie scouts thing no competitive games you know every game was a kind of, it was so boring because every game you know ne i never got to win and you know I, maybe it's just me but I think that for a lot of people that there is that kind of desire and we need to understand that. Yeah, with the football thing, I think it just, it gives people a chance to, obviously to exercise these competitive drives, but also it gives you a chance to tap into a bigger identity than your own individual ego. And I think there's something very, very healthy about that as yep. well. You know, you can find other, other ways to do it. Another idea I love in the book, Mick, um, which I think is so, so important is this idea of, a radical acceptance of the other. And there's a quote from Kierkegaard I really love. It's something like, most, most people are subjective towards themselves and objective towards others, whereas the task is to flip that and to be objective towards oneself and subjective towards the other. Could you maybe tell us about the, the importance of radically accepting the other and how we can maybe better do this um, in our lives? Well, I think that, I mean, a lot of therapy, particularly person-centered humanistic therapies that's really at the core of how you work with clients is that stance of radical acceptance and going back to what we were saying earlier that doesn't mean that you're saying that everything somebody does is right 
if you're working with somebody who's hurting other people, then you challenge that. You might need to, um, you know, disclose that in a way that, you know, involves other people if, it, if, if it's, you know, somebody's really getting hurt. Um, so it's not about kind of colluding or, or um, kind of not, not taking these forward, but it is about valuing the person. And a lot of therapy is about learning to really value the person whilst you might challenge the behavior. That's, that's kind of cool to uh, a lot of therapeutic practices. And I think radical acceptance is about that. It, it's about recognizing that the other is fundamental, as I said before, it's human being like ourselves. Uh, that they they experience the world in particular ways, that they uh, make choices and that they do things for reasons that are intelligible, that that that, that, that they're not stupid or they're not fools. Um, they're not, I don't think most people, I mean, my sense is I don't think most people are kind of massively selfish. And I think sometimes the left characterizes the right as being selfish and only thinking about themselves. And I'm sure that's true to some extent, but, um, you know, but that's the same with all, but on the other hand, you know, people on the left can be selfish. Well, I can be selfish. I know I can be selfish. And, um, I don't think there is that kind of qualitative distinction between different kind of breeds of people, if you like breeds of people. Um, so I think radical acceptance is about recognizing the complexity in all of us. It's seeing the best in people without being naive. Um, and it's and and seeing understanding people as directional in the, in the way that we are that they're people are striving to fulfill their wants and needs often when people are um really hurting others it's because there's wants and needs that they have that have been really blocked or really frustrated that they've really struggled to get those met and people do people do sometimes actualize or try and realize their wants and needs in very destructive ways there's no doubt about that but i think radical acceptance is about recognizing that the, the kind of thing that they're ultimately striving for isn't a bad thing um you know one of the things i talk about in the book and it is, is a kind of fairly widely accepted concept and it's not kind of rocket science is that we there's a kind of hierarchy of behaviors or hierarchy of directions. We do things to fulfill other things. We do those things to fulfill other things. And you can kind of go up and down this hierarchy from, you know, the things that we most fundamentally want to need, like relatedness, like self-esteem, down to I don't know, tapping away at the computer or having a conversation. You know, I might have a conversation with someone because I want to establish a friendship. I might want to have a, establish a friendship because I want to have more relatedness in my life. So you can kind of go up and down. And I think radical acceptance is about recognizing, I think, rather than maybe saying, some people might say, but I think recognizing that right at the top of that hierarchy, there isn't any kind of be horrible, be others. Um, there's no, you know, if you look at most of the site, I don't know any psychological model, maybe Freud to some extent with the death instinct, but virtually every psychological model doesn't have something kind of evil at the top of the hierarchy. There's no, and I don't think there is. I don't think human beings have a highest order need to destroy, hurt, beat others. I think those are distorted ways of getting legitimate needs met. And I think most therapists would say the same thing um, because that's what they experience. You know, they, they, you know, so I mean, sometimes, I mean, having said that, you know, some therapists who work with really kind of harmful people have sometimes said, you know, I just don't understand. The only way you can understand this is in in, in terms of like something really kind of bad or, or something really did some desire to damage. But that is rare. That's really, really rare. I've heard that much more often. Those very damaging behaviors are kind of linked to massive abuse, massive trauma, massive distrust of the world and just attempts or not caring about things. I don't think there's anything bad up there. One of the things you talk about in the book or an example you used I thought was quite humorous, you know, you're talking about this hierarchy and you're saying, you know, within the same stretch of 10 minutes, human beings can contemplate whether, whether or not to have peas or beans for dinner or contemplate like the meaning of their life. Uh, just Which one, just, the one about peas or beans now? That one exactly, yeah. <laughs> Um, but it's just, it's just, it gives you an insight into 
how we can move between these yeah. different levels of meaning um yeah like, and then just on that i mean there's therapies like what's called methods of level which is a very interesting therapy and what they would say is that therapy is often about kind of looking up levels and seeing and kind of resolving things at a higher level uh i think it was einstein who said you can't resolve things at the kind of level you're working at often you need to go up a level and see what that what it is you're trying to do and by doing that, you can then find a better way of configuring at a lower level. Yeah. And a key idea here is to look at almost every human behavior as intelligible in some form, you know, and I think whenever you can do that, you, it helps you to remove a judgment from a situation or from a person and you get curious, you know, okay, so why might that person be doing that? You know, but is there a limit to this? You know, whenever we're talking about someone like like Putin or a Hitler or someone like that, you know, can we look at some of their behavior as intelligible? And, you know, what are your thoughts there? Having read Mein Kampf and been kind of watching uh, what's been happening on the news with Putin, I fear if I'm honest, and I don't want to sound kind of arrogant, but if I'm honest, I don't feel that I've reached my limit yet. When I, you know, reading my Kampf, I mean, obviously, and I'm Jewish, so it's a pretty disturbing read. It, it, it makes sense. I mean, it's horrific and it's violent and it's, you know, the, the, the horrors that emanated that, including in my own family, are just, you know, when you go to somewhere like Auschwitz and see the destruction that was caused, it's, of course, you're going it, to, it's so hard to hold on to that as a kind of part of the spectrum of humanity that people could have caused that. But I think that we need to, and I think it's possible to, and I think most importantly of all, you know, if this if it didn't come down to this, I wouldn't be saying this, but I think most importantly of all, that is gonna be ultimately the most effective way of changing it. And that's not to say that, you know, with Putin or with Hitler, that sometimes you don't need to use violence to protect people. But I think ultimately, we need to understand as people like Adorno and uh, Fromm and, and, and so many others try to do, to understand kind of where something so destructive can come from. Not to be nice to these people, you know, it's not about kind of appeasing or colluding. It's about saying like, if we really want to change this, you've got to understand it. And I don't think we really change people by criticizing, attacking, um, belittling, ridiculing, demonizing, kind of dehumanizing them. I don't, you know, I, I, if I believed, if I genuinely believed that created a fair or better world, I probably I would do that. I wouldn't, you know, have too much, so much of a problem with it, but I just don't think it does because I think when you get into that, what that does is it polarizes people. It makes people feel more staunch about their opinion. It makes people kind of dig their heels in and demonize you back. Um, you know, I mean, if that was a good way of dealing with things, if you look at something like couples therapy, then, um, you know, couples therapy would be saying, well, look, why don't you, you know, you prove your point to this person and you prove your point to that person and try and prove that you're right. And they don't, they say, let's, you know, you need to listen and try and listen, try and understand, try and see where the person's coming from. And, you know, couples therapists might be really clear about things like violence, absolutely not acceptable. But at the same time, if they're working with people, they'll say, we you know let, let's try and understand because that does lead to change i think so much destructive behavior comes from miscommunication and comes from a lack of communication comes from a lack of understanding and a lack of communication and if you can develop that community about a lot that a lot about that in the book if you can develop communication develop people listening to each other, then maybe it won't resolve any everything. But I think it certainly makes a, a kind of, it would be a really important contributor. You know, it might be, I mean, not going to mention question, you know, it might be that we really understand people. And we really communicate with people really understand. And at the end of the day, when you've done all that, there's still some residue of evilness that, you know, and that emerges. But you know, I don't I think we're a long way from recognizing that yet. I think, you know, understanding people whilst at the same time opposing them if they're hurting others is, is really important. Just going back to what you were saying about uh, reading reading Mein Kampf, and at the start of the interview, you mentioned that you've read Marx as well. And I think there's probably a very limited number of people on the planet that have that have read those two different perspectives, you know. Um, and I know from releasing this interview, people whenever we had that we had that opening conversation, people will have heard that, will have heard the name Marx and will immediately just have switched off or will have changed the changed the episode 
you know, and I think something that you should be commended for, Mick, is, you know, in, in all your work, there's a tremendous amount of objectivity and acknowledging your own biases and the limitations of your your own thinking. And I just, you know, I'm just curious to ask, how have you cultivated this mindset in your in your life and your work where you've deliberately tried to take on um, both perspectives and try to be no, be aware of your own biases, if that makes sense. Well, it's nice of you to say. I'm not sure my ex-wife would say the same about my levels of self-awareness and unbiasedness or my kids. I think, I mean, certainly therapy for me, you know, I mean, I think that's what therapy really helps us do is something about learning to stand back. I think it's partly that. I think it's pretty partly having a dad who was a communist and kind of recognizing that he, I mean, he was very loving and he was very humanistic, but he was also very dogmatic. And I think it was something about maybe an early age wanting to stand back from that. It's probably partly avoidance. I mean, I was in this family with everybody had opinions and were very loud and I was the youngest. So I think as the youngest child, I probably kind of rather than being another person with an opinion, it seemed more productive. <laughs> I didn't most of the time was just take my dinner up and go and watch the TV and leave them to it. But I think maybe at that level, I kind of, I think, you know, if I think a lot about my work, like pluralism, like, I mean, there's a similar theme there for me personally in pluralism is, is about trying to stand back from, pluralism is all about trying to stand back from any kind of one dogmatic position and listen to other positions i think and i i kind of feel like when you get to that when you do that it becomes very difficult to kind of go back on that because once you kind of see different positions and of course you know pluralism or what, what i'm talking about in this book i kind of have to stand back from that as well there's something about being passionate about it but also recognizing there's different positions and recognizing my emotional involvement in it it's like pluralism. Maybe that was a lot of the work was kind of with pluralism and developing a pluralistic approach to therapy. One of the things that I really recognized in that was how painful it was often to stand back from my own investment and alignment with a particular therapeutic approach like person-centered or existential. You know, I was really emotionally invested. And I'm still like I am with pluralism and trying to kind of be honest about that. So I think there's a number of things, Niall. You see, I, I, you, you, you've really picked up something for me there personally about how how I try and do things. Um, and it is, you know, and it's kind of really cool value for me, I think. Um, something about bringing those different positions together and you probably, probably need to go back into therapy to really work it out. Well, I just think it's so, it's so needed now more than ever just with we're just becoming so more and more polarized as a society so we just need this this kind of perspective i mean on the one hand it's difficult on the other hand it's like i meet more and more people now like for instance our pluralistic community something like yourself um i, I meet a lot of people who i feel can do that and are able to stand back and are able to kind of reflect and not hold really dogmatic positions. And I, I feel, I kind of feel like I encounter that more and more. And I, I did a piece for um, therapy today, the, the BACP magazine just recently saying that therapists and people who, who kind of have that capacity, like on the one hand, you don't want to be arrogant about it and smug, but also there is something really important there to contribute. I, I work with a lot of people and more and more kind of choose to work with those people who can hold multiple positions, who aren't investing in a position, who can, you know, a lot of it now is about dialogue and about that capacity for dialogue, you know, about being able to hold that position, which is having an opinion and being able to share it, but also being able to hold another one. And if we can do that, then I think we need to bring that out into the world and into the public sphere, not just keep it in therapeutic or psychological spaces. It is. It's, it's, it's a really important thing to be able to dialogue. 100%, so much value in it. Um, so another key theme in the book, Mick, is this idea of parallels between the intrapersonal level at the level of the individual and the interpersonal level. Can you tell us a bit more about this and why, why this is important? I think it comes from me from being really interested in the idea of multiple, not personalities, but the idea that we can think about the psyche and in a, a, a pluralistic, that we have these different sides. We have maybe a vulnerable side to ourselves and then we have maybe a more critical side. 
And in that sense, we can think about the person as like a kind of community and some of Miller Mayer and others have written about this idea of the kind of community of selves, that these, these different voices within us. And if we think about the person in that way as a community of voices, we can then start to think about kind of parallels between how that works and what's good functioning in that community and what's good functioning in a wider community. And what I write about in the book and what I found really fascinating, just really striking, is just... I think the parallels between what, say, somebody who's working at a community level between, say, uh, or between different communities or uh, working at a family systems therapist, how they would think about good functioning in that system at that interpersonal level and how we think about it as therapists working with the internal system. So one of the things, I mean, just going back to what we were saying, it's something about dialogue. Like as a therapist, when working with some of these different parts, whether explicitly or implicitly, it's not about it's bad having parts or it's good having parts. It, the, the key issue is whether these parts talk to each other and do they talk to each other in respectful ways? It's like you've got somebody's critical part is really haranguing and beating on a more vulnerable part. That's often where you've got problem and approaches like emotion-focused therapy really work with that to try and soften the critic, bring up the more vulnerable side so that they can have dialogue, so that the, so that the vulnerable side can say, well, I need some protection, but also so that the critical side, as you get this dialogue going, that the critical side stops saying you're rubbish, you're crap, you're just a useless person, but start saying something like, well, look, I'm trying to protect you, but this is all I know how, tell me how else to protect you. Um, and, and, and then when, if you look at a relationship or you look at a family or you look at a community, actually that process is really similar. That what you're trying to do, say if you're a mediator, an international mediation or a, a negotiator, you're trying to bring the voices into dialogue into understanding and a lot of it goes back to that process we talked about before what you do is you, you you look at the kind of lower level what's called positions in international negotiation sorry in uh, in negotiation you look at the positions and you try and understand what the kind of higher level interests are you know what is it the person really wants so you might have two neighbors squabbling over a fence or something but what you try and do is you try and understand well what is it you really want what are you trying to get out of that situation? Because often you can get locked into a conflict at a lower level about do you do it by way X or by way Y. But if you can look up and actually think about well, what the people really want and need. Like there's the example I talk about in the book where international negotiators working with Israel and Palestinians. And, you know, obviously there's a massive conflict there over land and rights. But if you look at what the groups need, actually, there's a lot of similarities. Both of them need to feel valued and there's need for safety and protection. And if you can work at that level, then you have the possibility of trying to find compromises, win-win solutions that you can't find at lower levels. And that's kind of what you do as a therapist. As a therapist, you're trying to find win-win solutions, synergies between the different parts of a person that the critical part and the vulnerable part rather than bashing against each other are actually able to sit down and work something out. So the critical part says, all right, look, I, I, I need to be quite strict with you, but I realize telling you you're rubbish isn't the way to do it. Maybe what I need to do is I need to remind you every morning that you've got to do this, this and this. And the vulnerable part says, yeah, and I realize that I need to kind of ask for a bit more. And, you know, people talk and they communicate and you get the possibilities of something better, whatever level that you're looking at. And I just find that amazing that at these different levels. And so one of the chapters in the book is thinking about what are the principles about good functioning, whatever level that we're looking at. And systems theorists have kind of been looking at this in some ways, although not so much psychologically. But I think there's some great principles, which are, you know, probably fairly, some of the fairly familiar, some are fairly new. I think there's something about developing trust is really important. Communication, obviously, is really, really important. Developing trust. I think there's one about, interestingly, perhaps the most controversial one is about being nice. But I think there is something about being nice and welcoming and friendly that at every level facilitates is like the kind of oil that allows things to move forward and for kind of getting virtuous cycles rather than vicious cycles, prizing difference and diversity, as I was talking about before. Uh, something about fairness is really important. And then that links it to more kind of progressive ideas about the importance of fairness. Um, so you get questions like, 
you know, what would an internal democracy look like? Like, what would it mean to function psychologically in an internally democratic way? And, and such an interesting question, I think, about if we took a kind of positive political structure and thought about what that would look like internally, or a kind of positive psychological understanding and think about what would that look like in terms of social and political structure. So if we can get those parallels and see it in a kind of alignment, and obviously it's not 100% there's differences, but understanding that alignment allows us to move up and down between levels and learn from each other. Which is which I find really exciting, really exciting. Hundred percent. I think that that parallel is just it's such an interesting thing to think about. Um, we've only we've only, haven't got long left, Mick. So I want to ask you another um, hypothetical question. So let's imagine now that you've just been made prime minister, <laughs> prime minister of the UK. Okay. Okay. And you can get three three policies through unobstructed. Yeah. yeah. All right. What are the first three policies that you? You put in for the betterment of society right number one social and emotional learning as a core part of the curriculum because i was just listening on the radio this morning actually when i was up on my run about kids saying that they, they put in these new laws about um kids getting sex education but they were saying it's just terrible and the teachers don't talk to them about sex and i just i just find it absolutely bonkers that um kids aren't brought up learning the most important things which is about how to relate to each other and how to manage themselves psychologically it's like why why are we still teaching our kids how to do that so the first thing would be like you got your maths you got your english you got your physics great but core curriculum social and emotional skills so that people can learn essential life skills and have proper conversations about how to get on with other people uh, how to talk to other people, uh, how to have good relationships, how to have good mental health, how to manage your emotions. There's, there's really good curriculums now that have been developed on social and emotional learning um, that I think would be brilliant to have as just a core part of what our kids learn at school. So that's the first thing I'd do. I think the second thing I would do uh, very closely related to that is positive parenting. So again, it just seems nuts to me that we don't, um, train people in how to parent, which we know is such an important role for the well-being of future generations. And there's a brilliant movement called Positive Parenting. People like Philippa Perry have written about this. Um, just really basic parenting skills, very much related to everything we talked about, Niall, about, um, about communicating clearly to your kids, about um, where they're doing stuff that is difficult, challenging them, but doing it in a way that is uh, accepting and that there's love there whilst there's also kind of boundaries. Um, there's programs out there that have been shown to be effective. And I think if people who were going into parenting, whether it was at school um, or whether it was in the community, were encouraged and supported to learn those basic positive parenting skills, um, that would make such a difference. What would you choose? Back to you. If you were prime minister, it goes back to it goes back to value structures and how do you how do you actually influence what people value? And for me, the most important thing is how do we value things that are going to lead to long term well being? And a, a big driver for entrepreneurs is you know chasing profit, chasing money, and that's that's okay. But if we can basically get get those people that are that are changing society to value the right things then that's going to make the biggest difference. So for example, you talked there about social and emotional learning. If you could have entrepreneurs, you know, the the, the best minds that, that, are, that are in the world focusing on these kind of problems, getting getting these kind of curriculums into school, then um, that would be, that would be the major thing that would move society forward, I think. So if I was making a policy, I would try and find a way to align incentives for entrepreneurs to, to chase those things as opposed to chasing designing the next app or the next Netflix or whatever, like get the, the best minds working on these problems that are really going to move the levers in society. But I, I don't know how you would actually do that. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, brilliant answer, no. Um, okay, so just a couple more, Mick. Um, has writing this book changed your perspective on anything in any way? Yeah. Um... I've finally managed to feel like I can take the foot off the pedal, so to speak. I mean, this is just purely personal, isn't it? Emotionally, um, I just—it's been an—it's been an amazing feeling actually to um, feel like I've finally said what I want to say. And I—I I, I keep on saying to everybody, you know, this is the last thing I'm ever going to write because um, 
I yeah, I've really said what I wanted to say, and I might you know I'm, I kind of imagine I might want to rework this at the moment, but there's something about just getting out. It's been you know, and it kind of really relates to things talked about in the book about the need for meaning, purpose, and it's been fantastic. I had we had a really nice launch party uh, at my partner's place, and uh, and I've I've never had a really kind of proper book launch party before, and it was a real celebration. Loads of people that I really love. Um, and that was so special and it's, it's, it's so emotionally it's changed me actually emotionally just getting that out there it's been it, yeah it feels like I can relax and sleep at night <laughs> <laughs> awesome well congratulations um, another question that I'm curious to ask is are you hopeful for the future of humanity it's scary it's scary times at the moment isn't it you know the Ukraine war and uh, climate catastrophe is just pretty terrifying. I feel, honest answers, I feel pretty equivocal. Um, I think we got the resources and, um, you know, the, one of the things doing this book was finding out about organisations like Compassion in Politics, uh, the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, what's going on in New Zealand with Jacinda Ardern uh, and in other countries around the world, which was really encouraging and really exciting. Um, to see that there's some really positive developments I wasn't aware of. And um, and that, that was great. But yes, it's definitely scary times. And I guess the scary bit is just that it doesn't take much to go wrong. You know, a few kind of big row in Ukraine, you know, at any point. I mean, that's, that's a stupid way of putting it. I mean, you know, just for nuclear uh, kind of holocaust um i guess is a reality isn't it so that scares me that it wouldn't take much to kind of those, those tip and the tipping points uh environmentally as well are really scary um but i definitely think that we have the resources and you know my hope is i guess that this book is like one little drop in a movement a, a river that is trying to do something more positive which and i do do think the way i do genuinely think that the way forward is through communication through a kind of radical acceptance through listening through um talking to each other um through thinking about what well-being is and through thinking about how we create that more thriving world and trying to move away from confrontational um belittling dehumanizing stances towards each other you know, my you know this now, but my favourite philosopher is Martin Buber, and um, you know when he talks about the iron now and that capacity for either relating, it encapsulates so much of really what I've written about, and also in the work of Carl Rogers, I think there are some really important seeds there for for how things can be better, and I think we do have a bit of a map, a bit more of a map than maybe we had hundred years ago. Hundred percent. Well, just just to wrap up, you know, like. We talked about before the conversation about this may be one of the most important topics that you could be focusing on. You know, this idea of pitting psychology at the heart of social change. And I can only imagine how difficult this was to fit that book together. So I just want to say a huge congratulations, Mick, on Thanks, getting this done. And I want to recommend everybody listening to this to pick up a copy of the book. Where can people um, get the book? Where's the best place you would like them to, to go Just to, directly to... from the policy press. Uh, it's published by Bristol University Press, Policy Press. So you can just go, just Google that and you'll find it. Fantastic. All right, Mick, it's been a pleasure. All the best. Thanks, Niall.